Chief Justice Roberts, President Carter, President Clinton, President Bush, President Obama, fellow Americans, and people of the world, thank you. We, the citizens of America, are now joined in a great national effort to rebuild our country and restore its promise for all of our people. Together, we will determine the course of America and the world for many, many years to come. We will face challenges. We will confront hardships. But we will get the job done. Every four years, we gather on these steps to carry out the orderly and peaceful transfer of power. And we are grateful to President Obama and First Lady Michelle Obama for their gracious aid throughout this transition. They have been magnificent. Thank you. Today's ceremony, however, has very special meaning because today we are not merely transferring power from one administration to another or from one party to another, but we are transferring power from Washington, D.C. and giving it back to you, the people. Too long, a small group in our nation's capital has reaped the rewards of government while the people have borne the cost. Washington flourished, but the people did not share in its wealth. Politicians prospered, but the jobs left and the factories closed. The establishment protected itself but not the citizens of our country. Their victories have not been your victories. Their triumphs have not been your triumphs. And while they celebrated in our nation's capital, there was little to celebrate for struggling families all across our land. That all changes starting right here and right now, because this moment is your moment. It belongs to you. It belongs to everyone gathered here today and everyone watching all across America. This is your day. This is your celebration. And this the United States of America is your country. What truly matters is not which party controls our government, but whether our government is controlled by the people. January 20th, 2017 will be remembered as the day the people became the rulers of this nation again.
the forgotten men and women of our country will be forgotten no longer. Everyone is listening to you now. You came by the tens of millions to become part of a historic movement, the likes of which the world has never seen before. At the center of this movement is a crucial conviction that a nation exists to serve its citizens. Americans want great schools for their children, safe neighborhoods for their families, and good jobs for themselves. These are just and reasonable demands of righteous people and a righteous public. But for too many of our citizens, a different reality exists. Mothers and children trapped in poverty in our inner cities, rusted out factories scattered like tombstones across the landscape of our nation. An education system flush with cash, but which leaves our young and beautiful students deprived of all knowledge. And the crime and the gangs and the drugs that have stolen too many lives and robbed our country of so much unrealized potential. This American carnage stops right here and stops right now. We are one nation and their pain is our pain. Their dreams are our dreams and their success will be our success. We share one heart, one home and one glorious destiny. The oath of office I take today is an oath of allegiance to all Americans. For many decades, we've enriched foreign industry at the expense of American industry, subsidized the armies of other countries while allowing for the very sad depletion of our military. We've defended other nations' borders while refusing to defend our own. And spent trillions and trillions of dollars overseas while America's infrastructure has fallen into disrepair and decay. We've made other countries rich while the wealth, strength and confidence of our country has dissipated over the horizon. One by one, the factories shuttered and left our shores with not even a thought about the millions and millions of American workers that were left behind. The wealth of our middle class has been ripped from their homes and then redistributed all across the world. But that is the past. And now we are looking only to the future. We assembled here today are issuing a new decree to be heard in every city, in every foreign capital, 
and in every hall of power. From this day forward, a new vision will govern our land. From this day forward, it's going to be only America first. America first. Every decision on trade, on taxes, on immigration, on foreign affairs will be made to benefit American workers and American families. We must protect our borders from the ravages of other countries making our products, stealing our companies, and destroying our jobs. Protection will lead to great prosperity and strength. I will fight for you with every breath in my body, and I will never, ever let you down. America will start winning again, winning like never before. We will bring back our jobs. We will bring back our borders. We will bring back our wealth. And we will bring back our dreams. We will build new roads and highways and bridges and airports and tunnels and railways all across our wonderful nation. We will get our people off of welfare and back to work, rebuilding our country with American hands and American labor. We will follow two simple rules, buy American and hire American. We will seek friendship and goodwill with the nations of the world. But we do so with the understanding that it is the right of all nations to put their own interests first. We do not seek to impose our way of life on anyone, but rather to let it shine as an example. We will shine for everyone to follow. We will reinforce old alliances and form new ones and unite the civilized world against radical Islamic terrorism, which we will eradicate completely from the face of the earth. At the bedrock of our politics will be a total allegiance to the United States of America. And through our loyalty to our country, we will rediscover our loyalty to each other. When you open your heart to patriotism, there is no room for prejudice. The Bible tells us how good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. We must speak our minds openly debate our disagreements honestly, but always pursue solidarity. When America is united, 
America is totally unstoppable. There should be no fear. We are protected and we will always be protected. We will be protected by the great men and women of our military and law enforcement. And most importantly, we will be protected by God. Finally, we must think big and dream even bigger. In America, we understand that a nation is only living as long as it is striving. We will no longer accept politicians who are all talk and no action, constantly complaining, but never doing anything about it. The time for empty talk is over. Now arrives the hour of action. Do not allow anyone to tell you that it cannot be done. No challenge can match the heart and fight and spirit of America. We will not fail. Our country will thrive and prosper again. We stand at the birth of a little millennium, ready to unlock the mysteries of space, to free the earth from the miseries of disease, and to harness the energies, industries, and technologies of tomorrow. A new national pride will stir ourselves, lift our sights, and heal our divisions. It's time to remember that old wisdom our soldiers will never forget, that whether we are black or brown or white, we all bleed the same red blood of patriots. We all enjoy the same glorious freedoms and we all salute the same great American flag. And whether a child is born in the urban sprawl of Detroit or the windswept plains of Nebraska, they look up at the same night sky, they fill their heart with the same dreams, and they are infused with the breath of life by the same almighty creator. So to all Americans in every city near and far, small and large, from mountain to mountain, from ocean to ocean, hear these words, you will never be ignored again. Your voice, your hopes, and your dreams will define our American destiny. And your courage and goodness and love will forever guide us along the way. Together, we will make America strong again. We will make America wealthy again. We will make America proud again. We will make America safe again. And yes, together, we will make America great again.
Thank you. God bless you. And God bless America. Thank you. God bless America. You can't run for a long time. Run on for a long time. Run on for a long time. But sooner or later, I'll put you down. Sooner or later, I'll put you down. Oh boy, and when they get cut down, the higher they go, the bigger the egos, the harder they fall. And that is how it is. Now, I thought it was important that we start at the beginning because (laughs) even in what I'm doing, I have to start at the beginning sometimes because we kind of miss a few things along the lines. We're too busy focusing on this, too busy focusing on that. Or sometimes we just learn something and forget something else. That requires elaboration, but I think... The best way to do that is for everyone to start at the beginning. Now, I have to agree. And it's said to me so many times before. um, But using a PSYOP for good, there's no such thing. It's still a PSYOP. And the reason that it took me a couple of well, it took me a year until I actually came into proximity with Bergie to understand that because I was, I was super ready. He realized being the one that created the great awakening, um, what was going on. And so did I, but you can't counter a PSYOP with a PSYOP. I'll explain. I'm going to try to explain. So there's two forms of PSYOPs, per se. The awakening and the Arab Spring. Now, the Arab Spring is what you, the people, have been influenced by. By those that claim that they are doing good. I think it's time to dispel that and have you understand it better. So while they're busy, the good and the bad, remember, the road to hell is paved with fantastic intentions. We've been busy on dealing with them. Psyching your enemy out is most important. And this is by threatening to pull the curtain back and pulling it slowly. See, they expect that when you tell the truth, you just dump it. You get a lot of that. I get a lot of that in my chat. So before we move on to that, sorry, Facebook and YouTube, but I still want to maintain those channels for those that aren't going over. So hop over to Twitch or Trovo uh, because, you know, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to let them eliminate my channel uh, for that. So hop over. Uh, I'm not going to let that happen. Because there are a lot of people that don't know how to use other platforms. So they're gonna have to, I'm gonna have to have those avenues going forward. 
before they migrate. All right, so where do we start? I think we should start with Noam Chomsky. How's that? Everybody hates to hate him, but I don't know. Has he changed or is it that he's just um, moved it over in his older life? Watch and learn. The Arab Spring was one of the most significant events of contemporary history. Uh, did it succeed? We don't really know. I think it's a work in progress. It, uh, if, if you take a look, it varied from country to country. The first, actually, the, it actually began in Western Sahara. Nobody talks about that, but they should. That's a country under, it's kind of like Palestine. It's under foreign military occupation violation of international law it was crushed very quickly by Morocco. Uh, but the first uh, part of the Arab Spring that kind of enters history was shortly after in Tunisia. Uh, Tunisia is mainly under French influence from the external side. And the French tried to crush it. Uh, they were supporting the dictator, Ben Ali, uh, even after, well after the, uh, in fact, even after he'd been expelled, they continued to support him. Uh, they failed. Uh, the, uh, it took roots, and it's had moderate success. I mean, I think there's improvements, and it's a positive, uh, has positive implications for the future. Uh, the next major case was Egypt, the most important country in the region. And there what happened, I think, was very dramatic and quite exciting. Uh, it's not just what caught media attention, Tahrir Square, Though that was very important. Uh, there was also, a, there's a long background of uh, a labor movement activism in Egypt, crushed by the regime, but uh, significant. In fact, uh, well, I don't have to tell you, but April 6th was named after the participation in a major strike in the big industrial centers. And that continued. And it's had some consequences, uh, which maybe are lasting. It seems to have given a kind of an opening for the first time to independent unions. There have been continuation of labor actions, a lot of them crushed by force. Force hasn't ended by any means. Uh, but that, I think, continued. It opened a space for discussion, which I think is probably going to have a lasting effect uh, in, on the culture and the society. Uh, the important External forces in that case were primarily the United States, secondarily England. Uh, typically, they, they followed the usual procedure. There's a standard procedure when your favorite dictator gets into trouble. It's followed all the time. Uh, Somoza and Marcos, uh, Duvalier, and long list of cases. Uh, support him as long as possible. Uh, when it becomes impossible, because maybe the army's turned against him or the business classes have turned against him, then issue uh, ringing declarations about your love for democracy, uh, send your dictator off somewhere, in this case, Sharm el-Sheikh, and then try to reinstitute the same system as much as you can. That happens with such regularity that it's kind of astonishing that the intellectual and scholarly world somehow can't see it. And that's what happened in Egypt. Uh, there was won't go through the details, but there was finally a reaction, a military coup. Uh, it's driving Egypt into some of its worst days maybe ever, and it's uh, supported by the United States. 
know, tepidly, like they don't say we love you, but they're supporting you. Uh, and uh, if you go to other countries, the major countries from the from the Western point of view, the most important countries are the oil-producing dictatorships. There, the first efforts at reform were just crushed violently. I mean, they were in Saudi Arabia, the most important. There were some attempts to uh, do what was being done elsewhere, you know, things happening after the Friday prayers. The police response was so overwhelming that people were afraid to go into the streets in Riyadh. In one country, Bahrain, it did make some progress when the Saudi, uh, Saudi Arabia sent an army in to crush it, mainly out of concern for the Shia areas in eastern Saudi Arabia, where most of the oil happens to be, and they want to make sure they keep that repressed. And the same elsewhere, it just couldn't get off the ground in the dictator, oil dictatorships. In Syria, the early steps were met with a vicious response by the Assad regime, uh, which not long after elicited a violent uprising. By now, the country is practically destroyed. It may not survive. A huge number of the population is just fleeing in desperation. It's led to a confrontation between the brutal Assad regime on the one hand and the murderous jihadi organizations, which are more or less similar in ideology, though they're fighting turf battles, uh, ISIS, Al-Nusra Front, Tahrar, you know. So it's just a total disaster. Uh, what will happen out of all of this? I think it's very hard to predict, just as nobody could have predicted the Arab Spring. But my guess is that uh, when the fragments sort of fall into place, there'll be a revival of the forces that led to the Arab Spring in the first place. And it's not the first time, after all. There's been effort after effort in the Arab and Muslim worlds to move towards a democracy and development, almost always crushed by external force, case after case. So that was Noam Chomsky, a linguist, who kind of broke down his uh, view of what happened with the Arab Spring. I think that we should take a look at the timeline of the Arab Spring so you understand what the Arab Spring is. That's something that we saw in the Zoom calls of how uh, they were using the Arab Spring as a template, you know, with all these factions. Because now you're going to see the PSYOP they deployed on you and how they deployed it. And this is not the bad guys. This is the good guys. So if it's just playing music um, like that, I'm going to just mute it. And I'm going to read this out uh, for my uh, radio listeners. On the 17th of December, 2010, in a small Tunisian town, Sidi Bouzid, grocery street vendor Mohamed Bouazizi set himself on fire in front of the governor's office. After having his cart confiscated and being ignored, by Tunisian authorities because he saw no hope. This is how it starts. These um, attacks. So his death unleashed a wave of anger of the society about poverty, repression, police brutality, and corruption. Now, as you can see, 
This is what's being deployed within the United States with the whole Black Lives Matter, the fake Asian Lives Matter. Remember, the guy shot up all those Asians. Why? Because because the hookers wouldn't give him free sex, which is true. And don't forget, all those prostitutes were victims of human trafficking by the man and the woman that were also shot that were the pimps. So, I mean, they were holding, (laughs) they had massage parlors, right? Anyway, so it eventually spread out of the borders of Tunisia and turned into the so-called Arab Spring. It takes one critical movement, one person to sacrifice, to get the people riled up, to be angry about the way society is, how much poverty there is, how much these businesses, repression, police brutality, cancel the police, right? On the 17th of December, 2010, after the death of Bouazizi was announced, thousands of people went to the Tunisian streets in order to express their anger and support uh, the young grocery vendor, grocery, you know, in his cart. And this is how it starts. They start to protest these bad things. Let me see. Okay, there's music, so I'm not going to play it. But what you see is all the Tunisians out in the street with their hands up, fists up, requesting peace. And what do you see? The police pushing back. All the people poured out. Police shooting, right? This is what you saw. This is what you've been seeing within the United States. And this is why I say you have to think again about the Proud Boys movement and everything else. Think. After weeks of riots, at the price of dozens of lives caused by clashes between demonstrators and security forces, the president, Ben Ali, decides to step down and flee to Saudi Arabia. So they wanted to remove him. And this is what they did. They started riots. They started panic. They started fear. (laughs) Man. And in the United States right now, we're getting it from both ends. This is exactly what an Arab Spring is. A kickoff event. And it shows you who is the one running it. Now, On the 25th of January, 2011, a month later, Egyptians were inspired by the events in Tunisia and the departure of Ben Ali. Frustrated by their situation in their government, they also decide to take the streets. Huh. How big was that Black Lives Matter movement? (laughs) But, you know, they don't talk about what they do in Africa. Pay attention. So... They decided to do the same thing, and it erupted, totally erupted. Let me see if we can hear this, or is it music? Let's see. Nope, it just shows people out on the streets in Egypt, you know, screaming, yelling, and they're saying, we will not be silenced. Whether you're a Christian, whether you're a Muslim, whether you're an atheist, you will demand your goddamn rights, and we will have our rights one way or another. We will never be silenced. Whoa, here is how they move. Here is how they move. So here's something that I've said before. And Nam Chomsky actually put it out correct. You cannot predict a collective human behavior 
if you don't treat it like a node. Your predictive analytics suck. Look at your groipers. Look at your proud boys because you chose to run the Arab Spring. Look at Ali Akbar. Pay attention. Look at the digital soldier movement. It's ping-backing into your face because rather than using truth, you're using deceit. This is how you know. This is, as you can see on your screen, all of them are praying. They're in, you know, in unity. They're protesting and the police are wetting them with water cannons as they pray. And they are not causing any harm. These are the things you need to look at. Whichever, they were triggered and they chose good. Look, they're all praying. They're not throwing anything. And yet they're being attacked by the police. Well, the government of the Hosni Mubarak is being in, it was eventually overthrown in a month. On the 11th of February, 2011, the so-called Friday of departure, they removed him. They did. That was quick. 30-day turnover. On the 26th of January, 2011, as Egypt was already in full force trying to remove, well, it wasn't Egypt, it's the UN, as they were trying to remove the Egyptian, the Syrians then turned out to be the next involved in the events of the Arab Spring. They began their uprising on the 26th of January, 2011, listen to this, after a police officer assaulted and arrested in public an elder man in Damascus. Hmm. You know, you got to find something that's appropriate. If they would have shot a criminal, right, who stole or robbed the store like it did in Ferguson, which had a gun, they wouldn't have uprose. If it was a woman that cheated on her husband being stoned, they may have said something, but they would have been silent because it's a cultural thing. If it would have been a kid beaten up, they may have overseen it, cultural thing. But when you take an elder that has not bothered you in the middle of the street, see, this is what localization means. Understanding how you can trigger the local community. Every single operation has to be cut and tailor-made for the community that you are targeting. Now, as you are listening to the Arab Spring timeline, I want you to think from 2016, 2015 actually, 2015, how the Arab Spring was deployed both on the left and on the right. Now, I'm not going to say that the right, where they're supposedly the good guys, right? that their deployment of a version a version of the Arab Spring didn't mitigate what the left was doing. <laughs> but in no, do not mistake in this. It was the worst decision they made ever to create little underground factions to embrace insane people that are just mercenaries. Remember, everything they hate, they did, and they fucked it up. They should have listened to what they were being told by people that have executed such operations and localized them. If you try to psyop a psyop, you both will be psyoped, countermeasures, because it's self-destruction. The only thing that can fix this 
is the truth. That is what it is. So this localized event was successful, was completely successful. So what happened? They also arrested 15 teenagers for writing slogans against the government in the city of Dara in March of 2011, which turned to be initiating more and more riots around the country as Syrians, by nature, were open and welcoming, right? The Syrians were the ones that took the refugees from Europe during World War II. They're not people that accept dictatorship. Their flag tells you who they are. So when these teenagers wrote slogans against the government and they were arrested, coupled with the disrespect of the elder, so you attack very Whoever did this was very smart. You attacked our elder who is wise and you silence and you attack our youth that question the status quo. Mm. See, the Syrians took a little bit longer. I mean, they're still going through it. And that's what happened. More riots just started to populate. And there you go. Explosions galore. As you can see, for those watching on the screen, they're showing the explosion of Baba Amir. Yep, explosions. They will kill you to get their point across. The powers that be. Rain was used as drinking water because they had no water, no power. And look at the soldiers. They attack them. Because here's the thing. While President Assad was still head of the state, right? His soldiers didn't know who was good, who was evil, what was creating these factions. And remember, that's 2011. It's 2021. It's been going on for 10 years because suddenly it was the people of Syria against the government. Now, something a lot of people don't know is that Assad himself investigated to see why they arrested these kids why the elder was beat up, but that was quickly killed off in silence because already in Syria, they had planted these little groups, ISIS, ISIL, Hamas, you name it. They had it, Al-Qaeda. They were already there because they wanted him out. Why? Because he's giving way too much control to the people and he needed to stop. So even though they would call him a dictator, no one believed he was a dictator. But beating up an elder makes you look like a dictator. Now, even though he looked into it and investigated it, oh, well, you know, it doesn't matter. No one heard about it. Even though the 15 teenagers were arrested, it was actually um, 14 of them that were told to go there, told to be taped, and had specific police paid to do it, Right? Nobody cared. They had already had the plants in there to say, no, 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 we need to fight. He needs one person in a group of people that are pissed off to pick them up. And this is still going on. Now, as you're listening to this, I want you to think of the events, not just the Sunrise Movement, DC shutdown, Black Lives Matter, and Antifa, which Antifa actually, 
All of those have their equivalents on the right. I want you to have that sitting in the back of your mind. They have the equivalent on the right. They have the equivalent on the right. They have the equivalent on the right. So this is what really happened. Just like Chomsky said, you want to remove him, you do it. On the 27th of January, 2011, right? This is a month after it began in Tunisia. The citizens of Yemen began their fight. Crowds of people started appearing on the streets in order to express their rage and disappointment. Not like they were motivated by any specific groups or anything like the Houthis and stuff, I'm just saying. So there they are, all in unison, all in prayer, all protesting in Yemen, all of them against this big, bad, evil government that they need removed. They were shouting and they had every right to, but they were shouting for the wrong reasons because the people that empowered them, the people that planted the seeds for this revolution were not there to help them, but to simply destroy them and using the people to do it. Look at them. They're all happy. They're holding hands. They're all protesting. Even the burkas are out. Look, the women that are supposedly slaves, right? And that are so, so oppressed are out there marching. Riots have eventually led to the overthrown President Ali Abdul Saleh on the 23rd of November. They took a little bit longer. Houthis didn't have much power because, you know, President Saleh was like, yo, King, what are you doing in Saudi Arabia? We need to like figure this out. So they cut a deal. They cut a deal. They cut a deal because he had some clout. Remember, Yemen and Oman, big important thing on the pipelines, gas. Remember, when they overthrow leaders, it's because they're not obedient to the global network to accept them giving and handing over all their natural resources. Pretty much selling out their own people. So then on the 15th of February, 2011, Libya. Yeah, you heard of Benghazi, right? We've heard of it. They also participated in the Arab Spring. You see the game over sign? The uprising turned into a civil war. You see it? And all of them went out onto the streets. All of them protest. Oh, man. And then Benghazi happened, right? Uh-huh. See, it was all orchestrated by the same people. All this bad stuff of egging people on. Look, how many of this organized influence have you seen in your nation today? How many of them, both good, if you want to call it good, and bad. How many of them? How many of them had told you the overthrow of the government of Gaddafi had place on, on it took place on the 23rd of August 2011 and his death in a battle on the 20th of October 2011. They really needed to get rid of him. They really needed to get rid of him because he actually was a visionary. He wanted to use the truth and they didn't want him to use the truth. And that's it. People of Arab Spring put an enormous effort to improve the situation 
within their countries? Are you listening to how they're making it good? However, the fact is that the revolution is still taking place in their everyday life away from riots in the streets, especially in the case of Syrians who still need to live with a country of an ongoing civil war. So this is quite misleading. This is how the left sees it. It was never, it was never good. Let's pretend we have a room with a hundred people. And five of them have a small chat on the side with some random person who makes sense, who looks poised and benign. Maybe, you know, they could be someone of stature, maybe a UN official or, you know, um, a general, an admiral, uh, a former president, a former vice president, um, a head of an intelligence agency, something that tells them, hey, we can take them down. This is what you do. And all they do is plant the seed. And those five people rejoin the other 95. And suddenly, those five people tell another five people. And suddenly, you've got yourself a movement. Every single person they've told you is a dictator, they invented, removed, and replaced. Every single one. There is no war except the war against the people. They're not at war. There are no enemies. I've said this before. Do you think that Saudi Arabia wants to eliminate the United States of America? Let's think about it. What about Iraq or Russia or China? Do they want to eliminate the United States of America? No, they don't. They love what we have to offer. They love to laugh with us, at us. They love our tech. They love our spunk, right? Do you want to eradicate Russia? No. You like Stolnitsya, the whole Siberian stuff. There is no war. These are invented to ensure that they can control those that are in power to keep their mouth shut and get the job done and subdue the population. So before we talk about that more, I think it's important that you guys see um, 10 of the greatest underdog victories. Again, <laughs> do not mistake in that for claiming that you're the underdog because you are totally not the underdog. They are. But it's important that you see how the impossible is truly not impossible. Here we go. Wait a minute. Let's get this up. Ten greatest underdog victories in history. Number ten, the Battle of Morgarten. Nowadays, we know Switzerland as the land of chocolate, watches, and peace. However, the Swiss were once used to not just fighting wars, but winning them. That legacy stretches back to the Battle of Morgarten in 1315, just after the formation of the Swiss Confederacy. 
Habsburg Austria wasn't too happy with this alliance of rebellious peasants, so Duke Leopold led a force of 5,000 men into the mountains. In most settings, the 1,500 Swiss peasants would be no match for the highly trained Austrian cavalry, but they put their native Alpine terrain to excellent use. The Swiss hid at the narrow pass of Morganton, where, against all odds, they destabilized and confused the opposing cavalry with nothing more than rocks and logs. With the tide turned, the Swiss charged down to inflict as many as 1,500 Austrian casualties and force a swift, chaotic retreat. Number 9. The Battle of Samar. In 1944, the American and Japanese forces fought a series of engagements known collectively as the Battle of Liete Gulf, by some accounts the largest in naval history. One engagement, near Samar in the Philippines, saw the tiny American unit dubbed Taffy 3 face a much greater contingent in the Japanese fleet. Taffy 3 was mostly light-armored escort ships, compared to heavy cruisers and battleships of the Japanese. The Americans could have been wiped out by the superior Japanese force, leaving an open route to key US naval positions. But Taffy 3's relentless defense convinced Japanese Admiral Kurita that the opposition was far larger than it actually was. They even sent fighter planes on repeated fake assaults to simulate a larger assault. There's a good chance that if Kurita's forces didn't retreat, it could have crushed Taffy 3 and massively extended the Pacific naval conflicts of World War II. Number 8. The Battle of Stirling Bridge This 1297 battle took place as part of the First Scottish War of Independence, a campaign that decimated southern Scotland. By the time of the battle, the Scottish army was comprised mostly of the lowest class since King Edward's army had captured most of the Scottish nobility. But that wasn't enough to deter William Wallace and Andrew Murray, who led a contingent of around 5,000 men mostly peasants with 300 horsemen, against 9,000 English soldiers, including a 2,000-strong cavalry force. However, Murray and Wallace had the cunning plan to use the English's army size to their advantage. They waited uphill and allowed around 2,000 soldiers to cross Stirling Bridge before striking, eventually killing more than 5,000 and leaving the leftover soldiers shaken with fear. That victory didn't just stall the English advance, it gave us one of the most iconic film moments of all time. Number 7. The Battle of Fei River by 383 AD, the Chinese state of former Qin had grown rapidly in size to conquer all of northern China and had its sights on the south. The Qin Emperor Fu Xian had amassed an army of over 800,000 to the west of Fei River, ready to face the opposing Jin dynasty with an army of just one-tenth the size, though sources suggest this scale was probably a massive exaggeration. But cunningly, the Jin general Shi Shan sent word to the Qin to move their army back slightly so that they could engage in battle. Fuxi agreed, despite his general's protest, and that turned out to be his downfall. By moving back, the poorly trained Qin soldiers believed they were already retreating in defeat and descended into chaos, leaving the Jin a chance to kill more than 700,000 of them as they fled out of confusion. Number 6. The Battle of Suo Musalmi Everyone's familiar with the Western, Eastern, and Pacific fronts of World War II, but one conflict mostly goes under the radar. The Winter War in 1939 saw Stalin pit 760,000 soldiers, 6,000 tanks, and 4,000 aircraft against 300,000, 32, and 114 of the same from the Finnish army. The war did end in Moscow's favor, but staunch resistance from the Finnish trashed Stalin's military reputation. There's no better example than Suomu Salmi. This particular clash saw 11,000 Finns take on five times as many Russians and a tank brigade in a struggle for the key Finnish territory. But, despite dwarfing the Finns' numbers, the Russians dealt with low morale and a lack of experienced officers after Stalin's purges. That, combined with bad intel and a massive lack of knowledge about the terrain, gave Finland a crucial win 
that may have prevented a total Russian conquest. Number five, the Battle of East and Luana. You'd think the invading British Empire would crush the technologically inferior Zulus at every turn. That 1879 campaign eventually succeeded, but when you're the most powerful military force on the planet, it's easy to underestimate your enemies. That was exactly the case at Isanduana. This was an instance where the favorite failed because of monumental misjudgment. The Zulu force of Setweo Kampande should have been no match for British General Lord Chelmsford's rifles, mountain guns, and rockets in a fair fight. Chelmsford believed that this was the case too, and he made a laundry list of tactical errors. His bad location intel, the choice to split his army in two, and the underestimation of the Zulu's home field advantage proved catastrophic. But most of all, the arrogant Chelmsford saw fit to send just 1,837 men to engage in what turned out to be 15,000 Zulus, losing all but 500 in the process. Number four, the battle on the ice. History teaches that conquering Russia pretty much doesn't happen. Well, unless you're these guys. But the Teutonic Order of Germany hadn't learned that lesson by 1242. In fact, they tried to crush Orthodox Persia as part of their crusades. Those Knights of the Holy Roman Empire sent 2,600 armed soldiers towards the east. However, that campaign failed with the battle on the ice against Prince Alexander Nevsky's Republic of Novgorod. Despite doubling the order's numbers, Nevsky's forces were mainly a ragtag assortment of pagans who had been weakened by earlier Spanish and Mongol invasions, making it a major target for the papacy. But the order made a fatal error by fighting on the frozen river Pipus. The hostile terrain let Nevsky attack from both flanks and destabilize the invaders. Some sources claim that the ice cracked and drowned the Germans. But, true or not, the order suffered a decisive loss that crippled the crusade. Number 3. The Battle of Salamis when it comes to Greco-Persian warfare, you're probably picturing 300, the Battle of Thermopylae in 1480 BC. But there's another underdog fight just weeks later that didn't go quite as badly. The united forces of the Greek city-states were once in a fraught position against Xerxes and the first massive military, which drew units from across Asia Minor to completely subjugate Greece. But when Xerxes sent as many as 1,200 ships across the Aegean Sea, the Athenian general Themistocles sent word to the public that some of the Greeks were evacuating to distract the Persians. When the Persians eventually returned to their invasion, the Greeks had gathered their ships at the Straits of the island of Salamis, which was far too narrow for the massive Persian fleet. The 378 Greek Trimene ships had perfectly positioned themselves to ravage Xerxes' forces, destroying 300 ships and losing just 40 before the Persians retreated. Number 2. The Battle of Long Tan Everyone thinks of the Vietnam War as an American conflict, but Australia played a big part of that Pacific conflict too. And what's more, the Battle of Long Tan became one of the West's most impressive victories against the Viet Cong. This engagement saw the 6th Battalion of the Royal Australian Regiment, which contains just 108 men, defeat an ambushed force of at least 1,500 Viet Cong in August 1966. The Australian battalion exchanged fire with their enemies in darkness for three hours, unable to see each other in the thick monsoon rain. Almost out of ammo, RAAF air support arrived to give covering fire for evacuation, with just 90 men surviving. That may not sound too victorious, but when the Australians swept the area the next day, they found nearly 300 enemy casualties, almost triple their number, and eventually realized that the battle had massively stalled Viet Cong activity in the Nui Dat area. Number 1. The Battle of Myongyang Japan and Korea don't exactly have a peaceful history. In fact, they fought nine major conflicts in seven centuries. But, at no point in the history of these conflicts has there been such an unlikely victory. 
1597, General Yi of Korea commanded his entire force, just 13 ships, against Todo Takatora's Japanese fleet of 120 to 300 vessels. But in the face of such dire odds, General Yi was steadfast. He even said, Though our navy is small, as long as I live, the enemy cannot despise us. So, he hatched a plan to use the Myongyang Strait as a natural bottleneck. The narrow waters and unfavorable tide meant that the Japanese fleet had to send in small batches of ships and lost their hopes of surrounding the Korean boats. From there, Yi was able to take out 30 ships with none of his own lost, swiftly convincing Todo to retreat. That was the 10 greatest underdog victories in history. Which one did you find? So what's the commonality of all of these victories? Psychological operations. Psyching out the enemy. Now... Here's what happened in the United States of America. They deployed the Arab Spring on the good, America first side, and on the bad. So one has to think, why would they deploy psychological operations against a psychological operation? Well, because that's how you counter warfare. This is irregular warfare. But the thing is, Rather than have the best game theorists tell them, nope, it's wrong, well, or maybe they did and that's why they were pushed aside, they picked the wrong template. The only way to beat psychological warfare is with the truth. You don't create stupid factions like Antifa, the Proud Boys, thinking that you're going to make something because you just cause more confusion, which makes you just as bad. The people are a lot smarter. The people are a lot more united under truth than they are of lies and deceit. That's the problem. Truth doesn't need a banner, doesn't need stars, doesn't need titles or tiaras, doesn't need anybody's coats, tails, nothing. It simply is, and it stands on its own. So while many may think that President Trump was stupid, or didn't know any better. <laughs> He's a genius. Truth, truth. You didn't need to create red string digital bullshit. You didn't need to weaponize Infowars. We don't need information warfare. We didn't need the Groypers. We didn't need the Twinks for Trumps. We didn't need the Ali Akbars, the Jack Posobiecs, the Mike Cernovich. We didn't need that. We needed the truth. But here's the silver lining. Now, there's no going back. Now, you can see it for what it is. You can see the truth. You can see the right fighting with the left is all manufactured. You can see... The media countering the other media is all manufactured. Their primary target, truth. Again, like I've said, because I mentioned, uh, I mentioned Mike Cernovich. What did I say? I like him. Everybody despises him. I like him because you know exactly where he stands and that's in the middle. That's why he speaks out of both sides of his mouth. You know, this operation failed hard. It really failed. But I realized that it had to fail because this is how the people see the truth. 
how much silver did they get? Nothing. Because it'll never seed. If you create a brand, a product, a war, a book, a picture, a program, anything you create that is done with deceit and with the wrong driving force against good, against unconditional love, but simply for self-gain, spite, and anger, you will fail. You will always fail. So many times I revisit my anger for how upset and distraught and frustrated I am that all of this pain that is coming and is here could have been avoided if they stopped and admitted that they implemented the wrong strategy. Y'all know how I feel about Patrick Bergie. I love the shit out of him, but he's like my, have you ever seen that little picture with the white spy, black spy fighting each other? <laughs> it's one of them with a bomber dynamite behind their back. That's how I feel we are. But the one thing we do see eye to eye in is that the, the awakening was the important factor. The awakening and giving truth was important. And so this is why I want to show it to you. You think it only happens in Arab nations? No. It happens everywhere. I want you to see a report that was done. I think it was like 2015, 2013. It's 2015. Of how the Arab Spring changed Europe forever. What? Europe? See, because every single time we implemented a strategy, it was always pitting one person against the other, creating factions and little groups that we pay. They're nothing but mercenaries. They do things for money. Herb Spring began in Tunisia in late 2010, when a street vendor named Mohamed Bouazizi lit himself on fire to protest government harassment and corruption. It's hard to believe that that was almost five years ago. And it's even harder to believe all of the things that have happened since then as a direct but wildly unexpected result of that one act. On the largest of scales, regimes have fallen, risen, and fallen again, and terrorism has an entirely new face. And on the smallest of scales, Germany may soon gain a dentist. Now stay with me on this, because it's really important to remember how this all came to be. Back in 2011, the death of Mohamed Bouazizi fanned a massive popular revolt in Tunisia, and protests over the lack of job opportunities and basics like free speech. The protests were a startling success, leading to the ouster of Tunisia's president within weeks. Millions of people across the Middle East watched all this happen, and very quickly, what began as an isolated incident became regional chaos. Popular protests flared in Egypt, Libya, Yemen, Bahrain, and Syria, and the Arab Spring came into its own. The results of these movements have been mixed, 
Egypt, for example, has struggled with numerous elections, crackdowns, counter-protests, and power shifts since 2011. And in many cases, the movements have fallen out of the international consciousness. Part of that might just be the fickle temperament of the news media, but something else appeared that supplanted the Arab Spring in that international consciousness. ISIS. The story of ISIS is well told, or at least often told, but it's easy to forget that ISIS was born of the Arab Spring just as the new governments in Egypt and Tunisia were. So let's just think about it, ISIS, mercenaries, paid mercenaries, ISIL, wait, ISIS, everything, paid mercenaries, we trained them, we paid them, why? Because we wanted to remove and replace. Now I want you to think, when, when George Floyd happened, well, they tried it before with the whole, you know, Ferguson to cover up the whole water debacle where they poisoned citizens. Legit, they did. Right. But when this whole George Floyd thing happened, it was insane. Right. It was completely insane. You saw him have like the funerals with the four guys dancing, empty caskets in different states, in other nations, people wearing Black Lives Matter at the Olympics for fuck's sake. Okay, for fuck's sake, people are crying about Black Lives Matter, but nobody talks about the atrocities to real black human beings in Africa. Nobody does. That was their Petri dish. They use those people like nobody's business. But yet look at the fakeness. Look how quick that spread. The kneeling, the hating. Oh, Guys, you have no idea. Oh, George, hello. Here's the thing. Why am I here? Why are people like me who don't exist here? Because nobody listened. Uh, don't do this. Don't deploy a counter Arab Spring to an Arab Spring because it's just going to self-destruct. You want war? You want the countries and the cities? Oh, damn. So then... If you want chaos, you should have perfect, organic, people-driven chaos. Not chaos that you decide and select assets to push. Not chaos where you decide how to poison the minds of the people and make them look like cult worshippers. If you take a step back and you read some of these articles <clears throat> that the left is putting out, they're kind of true. Look at the cult mentality. Why? Because they were told. You know what's beautiful about chaos? Out of chaos derives order. And so how can some people and organizations and group believe that their order and their highly organized thought will bring perfect chaos? You are not God. You cannot control the souls and hearts of the people. And the only way to see how amazing and awesome God is, is to let the people decide with the truth. If you control the truth, if you control information, that's man-made chaos. That never ends well. Never. No matter how great your psyop you think is, no matter how much you empower the people, good people, people that look for truth, Will not accept it maybe for a little bit but as you can see almost four years now they've been given truth slowly 
but surely. It's not a coincidence that we're driving the direction of the news. It's not a coincidence that you're failing to control the narrative. It's because you did it wrong. Truth does not need propaganda. Truth does not need rallies and events and talks. Truth does not need any of that. It simply is. Now, as you can see, the concern in 2015 was how the Arab Spring has changed Europe. The chaos in Syria, the factions fighting for and against President Assad's regime, that became fertile ground for ISIS. And now, almost five years after protests began, the country is in tatters. And that brings us to the news that now completely dominates the international consciousness, the migrant crisis. Hundreds of thousands of migrants and refugees are streaming into Europe right now, from all over the Middle East and North Africa, and many from Syria in particular. Lots cross the Mediterranean Sea in boats that can barely support them, and many also die in the attempt. This man, Hossam, is one of the scores of Syrians who took his chances on the Mediterranean, and now that he's made it to Greece, he has a specific destination in mind. I'm going to complete my study in Germany, I think, yes. Germany is uh, one of the better uh, Europe countries for study, uh, especially in dentistry. Which, to bring this labyrinthine story back to the very beginning, is why Germany may soon gain a dentist. Of all the countries in Europe, Germany has led the way in supporting migrants and refugees, expecting to process 800,000 new arrivals or more this year. Hossam, after studying dentistry in Syria and then fleeing from civil war and terror, may be able to continue his life and studies in Germany. And that is the bewildering, harrowing, and still-evolving ripple effect of the Arab Spring. One single event in five years of fallout. Scores of Syrians, like Hossam, are fleeing their country in search of a better life. But many Europeans have started to restrict their border crossings in reaction to the crisis. Watch this episode to see what happened when Hungary closed a portion of their border, just as thousands of refugees were attempting to cross. So I want to stop it right there for a second. They're telling you that these people, uh, it's a good thing that they uh, escaped Syria and continue. Do you see how they use people as pawns? Do you see how they do the headcount mesmerizing you, thinking that they have control? When you need to control a man's mind and influence their decision, you've lost. Truth simply is. Germany, the ripple effect of the Arab Spring. You mean the Clinton Foundation's idea of how to push? It started a long, long time ago. And it was established in 2005. The United Nations had the rollout, one of the biggest assets, the Clinton Foundation, and they wrote it in their own literature, was Kofi Annan, the head of the UN at the time. See, they force migration, force groupings. Even even the fact that we support our president can be seen as a result. But the thing is, people flocking to President Trump are not flocking there because, you know, this group or that group told them. It's because they're flocking there because they can see the truth. They're flocking there because they can see the truth. Truth 
huh? The darker it is, the brighter it shines because you can't miss it. It's like the mirage, you know, that they're giving you in a desert where you think there's a spring of water and you're running to it and you can taste the water. And when you get to it, it's really not water. This has been their plan for a long time. And those that are supposed to be on our side have deployed the same thing. It's not a ripple effect. It's a booster shot. (laughs) Every single time I've deployed the same thing in those areas, it's just perpetuated. Ukraine, color revolution, Arab Spring, hello. What happened in Greece with their debt? What happened here? What happened there? What's going on in Hong Kong? Look at it. Pay attention. Take a step back. Look at the reflection of the moon. It tells you everything. Why am I here? (laughs) Because they dumb fucked up. Why do people choose? You don't have any national secrets. Shut up. There's global secrets. Global secrets. And they've made it seem impossible. And they're trying to convince people it's impossible. But with humans, they need to understand that in your realm, it is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Like I and many, they can do so much through him. And that's where they get their strength, even at the times of weakness. Those of little faith, I tell you, if your faith is that of a little grand grain of little sand, right? Which is pretty much, you can't even see it. Like, let's even make it half a grain of sand. Even if it's that tiny, the size of one sheet of graphene, right? Nanometers. And you say, I want to move this boulder. Guess what? It's going to move. But the problem is people really don't have faith. We say we have faith, but we don't have faith. How is it that we can change things? Because we know we can, but you don't. You don't believe it. You think going to church every day, every Sunday, reading your Bible constantly by repetition, it'll sink in. I tell you, when you relieve everything and you let go and you're like, no, man, it's going to happen because I said so. It will happen because you said so. All you need is the truth. And the truth is that you can do that. There's nothing he can't do. God is so awesome. He'll give you the strength. He'll help you. And he will give you the right hand that you need. This is true. All things are possible. And that's the thing. When you mitigate... When you mitigate an Arab Spring color revolution psyop with an Arab Spring color revolution psyop to the psyop, guess what? You lose because you don't trust that God is going to do this, that the people can do this. The plan has always been the people. All they need is truth. That is it. All they need is truth. Give them the truth. People that use people for their advantage. 
You know, in, in my life, and I've said this, many people will excuse uh, people in their lives for doing things because, I don't know, trauma, the way they were raised or whatever, right? But when you have someone in your proximity that you show nothing but love, nothing but support, nothing but full embrace, and you bathe them in that light, you expect them to shed that fear, that deceitful, let me turn the tables on you. But many don't because they lack faith. And when they lack faith, they fail. Their successes will be very, very short. Very short. I have complete sympathy and compassion for people that do things. Um, that I find appalling. But you know when I've told you, everybody tells you who they are. When people tell you, oh, it's probably this, or I'm so blaming others and doing stuff. I own my stuff. I know where I've made mistakes, don't you? Everybody does. I have no fear. I am distraught. I get confused. I fall to my knees all the time, and I'm like, what's How is this curveball going to help me in any way? Like, why do I have to deal with this right now? How many of you feel like that? This is where our nation is right now. Our nation is right there. And when I said that the president is a genius, he's a genius. I just hope his faith and his strength keep him there. I mean, I'm my name is on September 1st, right? So um, so I'm going to say like, you're going to see what red October means after like mid-September, I would say. So it would be after 9-11 for sure. But it's definitely going to be before. I mean, where's that kickoff of truth going to come out? See, this is what's ugly. That instead of giving truth, you should allow evil to counter your truth as much as they can. As much as they can. Because guess what? They run out of bullets at some point. They run out of bullets. They do. Sometimes they pick up the bullets and they recycle that shit. <laughs> they do. They, they recycle that. <laughs> they shoot, they shoot, and then they take the empty casings and they start shooting until they can't shoot the empty casings either. Right? This is how they do it. They just attack truth like crazy, at, like rabid dogs. Whereas if you use a psychological operation using Satan's tools, evil's tools to counter it. In the end, you will expend yourself too. And you will lose the credibility of the people. No matter how, let's pretend that you have a win. Let's pretend you have two. Let's pretend you have a great win. Do you know how short that win's going to be? Because while you find temporary satisfaction for one year, five years, 10 years, it'll all crumble down and you will be in the eyes of the Lord, seen as the same as the enemy and maybe even worse because you knew better. So when people say your heart's just not in it, that's the problem. That's the problem. That is really the problem. We can't use lies to counter lies. We need truth to counter both the lies that are supposed to help and the lies that are supposed to not help. 
That's the thing. It hurts me when I see people do this. It really does. Yet, you know, we have to be a little bit more tactful because we're working with humans and they have egos. Oh, my gosh. The egos. You know, while people were like, well, you have an ego. You're doing like all this. Look at me. I told you so. Yeah, I did tell you so. And if I'm telling you, you better as hell believe those people that are supposedly fighting for you were also told and ignored it. Pay attention. Pay attention. I'm not telling you. Oh, told you so. Oh, told you so. To rub my own ego. I don't need anyone to stroke me. I can do that shit myself per se. I don't need help. The truth doesn't need any help. It's to point you to open your eyes so you can see it. When someone's too proud, someone's too big to see where they made a mistake, they all fall over on each other. And you know what? The, 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 the more hurt comes to those that supposedly did it for good intentions. I mean, didn't Judas, you know, betray Christ for something that he thought was good? You can't use common sense anymore. You're not allowed to. People make us believe that truth is complicated or, oh, no, it's really more complicated than people tell you. It's not. It's usually quite simple. Okay, done. We don't need psyops. We don't need good psyops. We don't need gripers. We don't need, you know, these fake ass groups that were propped up with oohs and ahs and digital red strings. To guide the people. They don't need guidance. They just need truth. They'll follow it. It's like an internal compass. Like salmon knows to go upstream. People know when they hear the truth. You can't stop what's coming. And let me tell you something. Using that knowledge. And weaponizing that knowledge. To arm the masses. Is like being a goalkeeper. And kicking the ball in your own goal. And losing. The people. Are very capable. The people can unite like no other. This is why I said we needed to start at the beginning and remind ourselves to what the president said. Speaking of starting at the beginning and remind ourselves, where is it? We should listen to this. I am here as your president to proclaim before the country and before the world, this monument will never be desecrated. These heroes will never be defaced. Their legacy will never, ever be destroyed. Their achievements will never be forgotten. And Mount Rushmore will stand forever as an eternal tribute to our forefathers and to our freedom. We are the nation that gave rise to the Wright brothers, Harriet Tubman, George Patton, the great Louis Armstrong, Elvis Presley, Ella Fitzgerald. We settled the Wild West, won two world wars, landed American astronauts on the moon. Centuries from now, our legacy will be the cities we built, the champions we forged, the good that we did, and the monuments we created. America's destiny is in our sights. America's heroes embedded in our hearts. America's future is in our hands. And ladies and gentlemen, 
the best is yet to come. So the president knew. He knew what he would go through. He told you here. His body language told you exactly what you needed to know. He knew. He totally knew. And the best is to come. He sacrificed everything, everything to do it. So how do we move forward aside from being allowed to see the truth? Well, I guess the way we do it is by, I don't know, not looking down. So let's just take a really quick intermission. Uh, Cause I need to refill that coffee cup too. But listen to these words. It's not gloating. He's telling you a lot more than that. I found my smile is hiding from my mouth. I can't lie. My mind keeps finding time to fight myself. I dive so deep inside, feel like I died and I'm in hell. Or I'm so high, my eyes can't see the ground beneath the clouds. Don't look down. Don't look down. I tried to keep it quiet, silence on my cries for help. As long as I am rising till I'm upside down, I won't look down. This a meteoric rise, keep ignoring all the horror stories like so-and-so got way too famous and ended up killing himself with some pills and a knife. Hey, I am not the one who's gonna self-destruct, got it out the mud. I can way too far to fail and screw it up. I ain't dropping balls, I just blew them up. Hey, I will never let my mental illness be the cause of my downfall. I will never lie to none of my fans if I did it with sound wrong. I will never try convincing you dummies, this isn't a town hall. Never look down, never look down, just look around, y'all. Hey, all of my demons are here, all I can feel is fear. All I can do is keep being myself, and that's what I've been doing for 32 years. All of my haters came out, chasing my name for some clout. What are they angry about? They're climbing as high as their ladders can take them and screaming my name, but I don't look down. Okay, so I played that again because it's important to listen to what he's saying. He doesn't look down. He doesn't have to, what did he say, rap fast to attract listeners? Kind of like I don't need to pull out digital red string theory and tell you about secret sources that I have. <laughs> right? He's also saying people don't drop videos on Friday because that's his day. Well, how many people do you see doing a show 12 to 2? And those that do have failed. Here's the thing. That's what, see, listening to his song inspired me to change my time. So that way I can make them uncomfortable and move it along or just shut it down. See, that's the thing. And those that are on when I'm on fail. Why? Because they don't give you truth. They tell you what you want to hear. They tell you the lullaby you want to hear. Truth is different. Well, like a lot of people, a lot of people don't like to listen to, 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 to Patrick Berge because he tells truths. His, his, his perspective but there's still truth, right? Everybody has a perspective. When I'm tainted, I tell you my opinion, right? It's my opinion, okay? So, yeah, so next week, this show is changing. Tomorrow, I'll announce the time that I'll be changing it to. We're already starting to see shifts in that. Um, but before we move along, I think it's important that um, you listen to an interview that kind of went undetected. So it's a pretty important one. It's about Soleimani. Here we go. Uh, today, Mike Pompeo uh, gave a very forceful press conference on the fallout from the Iranian uh, jetliner going down. Uh, his 
concern. Uh, Please pay attention to what the president is telling you is that people aren't understanding the imminent nature of the threat of Soleimani. And he was pressed on that today. He said there were large-scale attacks planned on U.S. facilities. But he didn't go more specific. Don't the American people have a right to know what specifically was targeted without revealing methods and sources? Well, I don't think so, but we will tell you that probably it was going to be the embassy in Baghdad. You saw that happening. You saw it with all of the men, very few women, circling it and circling it very strongly and very viciously, knocking out windows and trying to get in. And they were close to getting in. And I called out the military. They said, we'll have it there tomorrow. I said, nope, you'll have it there today. We're not going to have another Benghazi on our hands. And we did a really amazing job. I got no credit for it, but we never get credit for anything. And that's okay. In the meantime, we have the greatest economy we've ever had, a lot of other things. But I think you would have had another Benghazi had we not acted quickly. That could have been stopped, and this was stopped. And uh, we had our Apaches going there, the, heli- the great helicopters, and they were dropping flares all over the place, and a lot of things were happening. They had action real fast, and everybody disappeared. So they have but- large-scale attacks planned for other embassies, and if those were planned... Why can't we reveal that to the American people? Wouldn't that help your case? I can reveal that I believe it would have been four embassies. And I think that probably uh, Baghdad already started. They were really amazed that we came in with that kind of a force. We came in with very powerful force and drove them out. You know, that ended almost immediately. But Baghdad certainly would have been the lead. But I think it would have been four embassies. Could have been military bases. Could have been a lot of other things, too. But it was imminent. And then all of a sudden... He was gone. Why is Nancy Pelosi describing her briefing as dismissive and disdainful? Mike Lee said it was insulting, the intel briefing. What, what wasn't said to mollify the concerns of some of your strongest supporters like Mike Lee? Yeah, he is a great supporter. He's a friend of mine. He called me just uh, a little while ago and he said, you know, I just wanted to get some more information. And he was, look, I've also had calls from some of the senators, some of the congressmen said it was the single best briefing. One person said they've been there for 10 years. It's the single best briefing they've ever had. One said 20 years, the single best military briefing they've ever had. Uh, I understand what Mike had. Mike wanted certain things said and we just couldn't say him. We could probably say maybe individually to him and he's certainly a trustworthy person. Are you worried that the Democrats can't be trusted with classified information? Because that's kind of what it sounded like when Pence gave that interview and talked about sources and methods the other day. So Pence gave the interview about sources and methods to let them know that, um, you know, it wasn't just the Democrats that he withdrew it from. She's like, but you're really good friends. Yeah, we're really good friends. But he didn't say anything. Listen carefully. I am worried about it. Certainly, I am worried about it. Can you imagine? Here we are, split second timing, executed like nobody's seen in many, many years on Soleimani. Can you imagine? They want us to call up and speak to crooked, corrupt politician Adam Schiff. Oh, Adam, we have somebody that we've been trying to get for a long time. We have a shot at him right now. Uh, Could we meet so that we can get your approval, Adam Schiff? So Adam Schiff, Adam Schiff, the one that was wiretapping the president, the one that is complaining that he didn't know that there was an attack. What do you care? The attack happened. You should be happy for it, shouldn't you? Because what have we said about the Arab Spring today? This is very important. What have we said about the Arab Spring? Uh Uh-huh. Factions, funded factions. 
And I have also told you how there are more underwater fibers sequestered in that area than anywhere else. Well, obviously, energy, natural resources control, but they can also conduct operations and training under the radar. And he'd say, well, let's do it in a couple of days. Oh, okay, let's meet in a couple. It doesn't work that way, uh, number one. Number two, they leak. Anything we give will be leaked immediately. You'll see breaking news. We're about to attack in 25 minutes or do something. And by the way, I'm not somebody that wants to attack. I probably could have attacked five times, ten times, having to do with Iran. I've been very guarded because I don't want to do that. But we may have to do something. We have to be in a position where we can do it, even from the negotiating standpoint. But hopefully it won't be necessary. We have tremendous sanctions. They're doing very poorly. They have riots all over their country. And they could straighten it out easy, but it's up to them. Speaking of the sanctions, Elon Omar, I think, said today that this is akin to economic warfare against Iran, even though she supports sanctions against Israel. Yeah. Uh, She hates Israel. She hates Jewish people. You just have to take a look at her rhetoric. It's incredible what's happened to the Democrats in Congress. They used to be supportive of Israel. Today, they're supportive of her and Tlaib. That's another real winner. Tlaib and AOC, who knows nothing. AOC knows nothing. Uh, Poor student, uh, poor everything. And then she comes and she talks about the Green New Deal and all these poor fools say, oh, isn't it wonderful? Isn't it wonderful? But, you know, as I said last night in Ohio, I don't like talking about the Green New Deal. It's too early. I want to save it for about two weeks before because they may change their mind. Uh, Bernie Sanders was out. You're not surprised to hear this uh, discussing Iran, what happened. And he basically said this. Just as we were led into Vietnam and Iraq by lies, the Trump administration is misleading us on Iran. They have justified the assassination of Qasim Soleimani by claiming that he was planning imminent attacks. And yet they produce no evidence that would justify this claim, not even in a classified setting. I don't see it happening. Uh, We are there for a very, very strong reason. They cannot have nuclear weapons. The Iran nuclear deal signed by President Obama gave $150 billion, and that's when the real terrorists started. They took that money and they used it all over the place. You look at Yemen, you look at all of the things that were happening, including Syria. They were using, Palestine gave $1.8 billion in cash, $1.7, $1.8 billion in cash, green cash, beautiful green cash. You almost say, where do they, how do they have the power to do this? Plane loads of cash. And instead of Iran saying, thank you very much, that's really nice, let's go and get along, let's do well, let's do deals together, let's build buildings in Iran, they said death to America. And they said it when they were signing. When Kerry signed, and by the way, Kerry violated the Logan Act. He's out there, he's out there just slamming violated. This man totally violated the Logan Act with his conversations, okay? But when Kerry was out there and making the deal, and they have people screaming death to America, death to America. I say, who signs a deal while they're screaming death to America? Well, they're saying was- UG stabilized the Middle East after campaigning as a man of restraint, non-interventionism. Elizabeth Warren is saying this, Kerry saying this, all the old Obama folks are out there, Susan Rice. They're all kind of waiting in the wings. They're like, see, he's, well, he's the guy that we told you he was. If you look at the Middle East right now, it's much tamer than it was when I got in. When I got in, it was just all over the place. Number one, we got rid of the caliphate, the ISIS caliphate. We have tens of thousands of ISIS prisoners. We've killed most of their fighters. We've gotten rid of ISIS. Now they come back and we take care of it. 
Other people should take care of it. Other countries should take care of it. Europe should take them back. Is NATO going to actually step up? I know they committed to doing more in the Middle East, but what specifically is NATO going to contribute that's going to take some of the burden off the American taxpayers? So when I came in, as you know, NATO was virtually a dead organization. It had no money. Nobody was paying except us. Practically nobody was paying. If you look at a chart of money and funds received, it looked like a roller coaster down. Now, and Secretary Stoltenberg, I think he's terrific. In my first year, I raised $130 billion from them, not from us. And now he just announced $530 billion, all because of me. He's my biggest salesman, my greatest salesman, Secretary Stoltenberg. But I said to him, look, you're there for Russia and Europe. Okay. By the way, NATO is much more for Europe than it is for us, and yet we. What are we protecting them from now? All the money we're, we're spending them. in NATO. What, who, who are we protecting them from? Well, they build an office building for three billion dollars. They do lots of things that they shouldn't be doing before I got here. But I raised a lot of money. We can use NATO in other locations. We can use NATO as an example in the Middle East. And that's what we should do. And Um, I think, frankly, it's more palatable to countries in the Middle East if an international force comes in rather than just the United States. And from our standpoint, let somebody else pay for it. Why are we always paying? We pay for everything. One thing, I moved our troops out on the border between Turkey and Syria. That turned out to be such a successful move, Laura. Look what happened. Now they protect the wrong. They've been fighting over that border for a thousand years. Why should we do it? And then they say he left troops in Syria. You know what I did? I left troops to take the oil. I took the oil. The only troops I have are taking the oil. They're protecting the oil. I took well, over we're taking the oil. oil. We're not taking well, oil. Well, maybe we will. Maybe we won't. See, at least he's honest. He's like, look, man, we were there. We did all this protection. And now we're going to take the freaking oil. And they could just fight over the border. Nobody, you know. We're getting some money back. We spent all this money. Deal is we take this and we're building our oil rigs and we'll make the oil for you. But we take a little bit off the top because we built it. That's what's up. See, he tells you as a businessman what he's doing. He didn't lie to you. He didn't say we're not there anymore to take the oil. We're protecting the oil, which means Turkey's not getting it. Iran's not getting it. Syria's not taking it. But what we're going to do is we're going to pump the oil. We're going to give it to the Syrians and we're going to take some of it. That's the way it is. I mean, we're there. He's telling you straight out. Protecting the facility. I don't know. Maybe we should take it. But we have the oil right now. The United States has the oil. So they say he left troops in Syria. No, I got rid of all of them other than we're protecting the oil. We have the oil. The Wall Street Journal is reporting today that after this strike, Mr. Trump told associates he was under pressure to deal with General Soleimani, take him out, from GOP senators he views as important supporters in the coming impeachment trial in the Senate, associates yeah. said. Sounds like you got a leaker here in the White no, House or someone. What is it? just fake? They, they just made it up. It's fake news. Okay. I used Street to think Journal. leakers, they just make it up. They're all very dishonest. Most of them are really dishonest. I mean, 80% are dishonest. And I mean, really dishonest. They made that story up. So no concern sure. about you know, so Lindsey Graham? Well, or- they don't need, no, not at all. By the way, absolutely not at all. We have tremendous support. Look, in the House, we were 196 to nothing, and we got three Democrats. So, therefore, it was bipartisan, I guess you could say. We got none, nothing. They had nothing. We didn't lose one Republican vote. As you know, that's very unusual. In the Senate, I think I have the same, if not more, support. I don't have to do that. I would never compromise what we're doing with Iran and potential war and all of the things that we're doing. So, so we're not well. doing Bush 2.0 here. 
This is not Bush no. 2.0. You know this is not WMD. You know what I want in the Middle East? I don't want people having nuclear weapons because they'll use them. I don't want people having nuclear weapons. That's my biggest thing. Well, John Kerry was out there yesterday saying, well, you guys got out of the Iran deal, and that's what's caused You know how bad the Iran deal was? The the Iran deal, I did a great thing getting out of the Iran deal. They gave them $150 They gave them the $1.8 billion. Forget that. You couldn't do inspections of the most important locations. And you know another big thing? They have the right to do ballistic missiles. We couldn't go into areas and look. We'd have to give massive notices. So if they were doing something, they could clean them up. It was ridiculous. But most importantly, it expires. This is a short-term agreement. And now, once it expired, they have an absolute clear, unstopped path to have nuclear weapons. Unstopped. In a very short period of time, the deal that President Obama made with John Kerry, who may be the worst negotiator I've ever seen, that deal expires. And you know what? Once it expires, you can't do what I did. I mean, because they have a deal that says once it expires, they can do and do what they want to do. You cannot let Iran have a nuclear weapon. That's what I'm doing. Pete Buttigieg and other Democrats, I, I predicted this when I talked to Mike Pompeo yesterday are actually blaming your moves against Iran for the downing of that commercial jetliner uh, in Iran, in Tehran, the night of the strikes by Iran to our uh, Iraqi facilities. Your reaction to that charge? Well, a couple of people started that and they got hit real fast by a lot of different people, not me. Uh, I think it's just low life. Look, he's not going anywhere. He was a lousy mayor of a place that is not doing well. And Indiana is doing unbelievably well. Indiana, the state had the best year they've ever had. Thank you very much. But that city was badly run. You look at what's going on. Jackie Spire saying he's going nowhere. And she's another beauty. I mean, take a look at her past. Check out her past, please. The Iraqi prime minister has notified Mike Pompeo about potential plans, drawing up plans for U.S. troop withdrawal from Iraq, period. You ran on pulling no, out of the Middle East. I, I don't Why not use this opportunity to say, okay we're done? It. I'm okay with it. By the way, you're okay with say. removing Listen, our troops from Iraq? That's what they say publicly. They don't say that privately, because if we leave, that means they're not going to be. But able why to not leave? Uh, I'm not so bad with it. You know, when I heard that, I said, "Hmm." You know, I have it down to five thousand troops. We had many, many troops there in Iraq, and we're there only in a training. We trained them, but if they'd want us to leave, but they speak different publicly than they do privately. But are we sending more troops to the region as we speak? Uh, We're sending more to Saudi Arabia, and Saudi Arabia is paying us for it. You know, we're doing something that nobody's ever done. I said to Saudi Arabia, we have a very good relationship with Saudi Arabia. I said, listen, you're a very rich country. You want more troops? I'm going to send them to you, but you've got to pay us. They're paying us. They've already deposited $1 billion in the bank. We are going to help them. But these rich countries have to pay for it. South Korea gave us $500 million. They never gave us any. They gave us $500 million. I said, you got to help us along. We have 32,000 soldiers in South Korea protecting you from North Korea. You've got to pay. And they gave us $500 million. I mean, you sort of have breaking news because nobody wants to report that stuff. I'm not sure anybody knows it. I might be sort of saying it. You have some. I mean, it's good stuff. But they're a wealthy country. They build all your television sets. They took that away from us. They build the ships. They build a lot of things. I said, look, we're protecting you. You got to pay. They paid us 500 million. They're going to pay us a lot more. Do you think that Iraq should 
repay the American taxpayer for these bases, sure. for well, what know, we've done there. You heard that from me, yeah, okay? I, I should, I said, will we? I said we built one of the world's most expensive uh, airport facilities anywhere in the world. I mean, I wish we had it in New York. I wish we had it in Washington. We built runways that are 15,000 feet long. At LaGuardia, they're 7,000 feet long. In fact, I think they're 20,000 feet long over there and deep, thick concrete and steel. Nobody ever built runways like this. Okay, I, you know, it was way overbuilt, but that's okay. But we have billions of dollars into that. I said, if we leave, you got to pay us. If we leave, you have to pay us for embassies. You have to pay us for the money we put in. How are you going to collect? Well, we have a lot of their money right now. We have a lot of their money. We have $35 billion of their money right now sitting in an account. And I think they'll agree to pay. I think they'll agree to pay. Otherwise, we'll stay there. So... There should be a part two, and we're going to take a look at that tomorrow together because I need to break that down for you. It's very important because now it's all going to make sense. He told you what was coming, even through that. So I thought it would be very important for us to end today's show with that. See you tomorrow. Same time, same place. And, oh, one more thing. Remember, the time that um, I'm changing my show to is going to be announced on Wednesday. And that starts, uh, the new time starts on Monday next week. Okay. Uh, So I'm just letting you guys know Monday next week is when the new time will be changed. Man, truth is their kryptonite. Legit it is. Took a walk around the world to ease my troubled mind. I left my body laying somewhere in the sand.